was basically to impress people. Uh, he was left sort of dry and desolate. And when he thought about leading a life, uh, you know, of more dedication and closer to the lives of the saints, he felt a sense of uh, joy and peace. And so he started to see in that moment um, uh, what he called discernment, uh, God leading him. And so it was that what we sometimes call that cannonball moment that uh, really changed his life. And you call him the patron saint of plan B. I do, because he was constantly having to, uh, you know, change his plans. He thought he would uh, go to the Holy Land and become a pilgrim and live there. And the Franciscans uh, probably rightly kicked him out. He thought he would be a priest, but he really realized he needed to go back to school. And he studied with young boys, basically. So he was always uh, discerning and always trying to see where God was leading him. And that wasn't always in a straight line. So let's turn to the exercises, Jim. Describe what they are. It's not a self-help book, but it's written for the use by spiritual directors for people who come on retreats. Yeah, that's right. It's a little hard to define. Someone once said it was like a cookbook. Uh, You know, it's a book of instructions, as you say, for the person who is directing someone on the retreat. Um, Usually the retreat is a four-week retreat, and essentially it's a series of meditations uh, broadly about uh, the life of Christ. Um, And as Anne was saying, you you imagine yourself in the scripture scenes and you directly encounter through your imagination, God's activity um, in your life and through these gospel scenes. So, so it's essentially a guidebook. You really can't read through it. Uh, you have to be, in a sense, given the exercises. Thomas Merton, the Trappist monk, once tried to do it on his own and it was kind of a, not, a, not a pleasant experience for him. So it's a guidebook, essentially, for a, for a long retreat. Jim, I'm just wondering, is there a possibility that... What decisions a person comes to within a retreat setting brings them up against Catholic teaching or even outside Catholic teaching? Could it be that the Holy Spirit is not bound by Catholic teaching? Sometimes, uh, but not often. Usually these are life decisions and it's a decision of moving closer to God or or living a more generous life. Uh, But sometimes we, we have to take seriously, as Ruth said, that the Holy Spirit is at work in people's consciences and as St. Ignatius said, uh, that the creator can deal with the creature directly. So we take seriously the activity of the Holy Spirit in the individual. Pete Doctor is one of Hollywood's most successful directors. He's won three Oscars, the last for directing the animated movie called Soul, which he says was heavily influenced by Ignatian spirituality. I asked him to give a very brief outline of the film's story. Well, the story of Soul is about Joe Gardner, who's a jazz pianist who longs to become a professional. He finally makes it, only to discover that that did not actually answer everything in his life that he thought it would. And it's a very kind of autobiographical story for me. So not that I'm a jazz pianist. (laughs) But you can read the story of Soul as a journey to finding God in all things, even small things, which is the goal of Ignatian spirituality. Yes, I fell in love with animation when I was in third grade. I loved it. I got to get a job. I get to make movies and uh, millions of people see it and they win awards. And yet I can tell you that didn't really fix me or fill me in the way that I thought it would in a permanent way. Um, And there's a story in uh, in, in Father Martin's book that we kind of adapted slightly in the movie. There's a part of the film where uh, this older musician says to our protagonist, I heard a story once about a fish. I heard this story about a fish. He swims up to this older fish and says, I'm trying to find this thing they call the ocean. The ocean, says the older fish. That's what you're in right now. 
this, says the young fish, this is water. What I want is the ocean. And he swims away. And that, to me, really kind of was the essence of what we were trying to say in the film, that you're often in pursuit of this other thing, not realizing that you're all around the greatness every day. I, I walked to work today and I touched a tree. You know, I felt the scars on the bark and I smelled some lavender and I felt this connection to something that's bigger than, than I am. And how great would it be if we could feel that all the time? There's also a moment in the film when Joe's done his great gig. He should be feeling exhilarated. And yet it's not that that gives him the satisfaction. It's looking in his treasure pocket and finding simple things. Yes. Yeah. Finding those things that connect us to the world around us, the people around us. I know there is something about the experience of life, especially when you are on sort of a repeat cycle of wake up, eat breakfast, do your chores, go to work. You start to you stop seeing all the remarkable things around you. And I think a lot of the process of spirituality is, is almost just like waking yourself back up to things that are remarkable that are around you um, that you're experiencing every day. The essence of Ignatian spirituality is that you immerse yourself in a story, usually from the Bible, one of the incidents in the life of Jesus, mm -hmm. and you reflect on what's going on based on your own experience. Now, that to me sounds a lot like what happens when you watch a film on the big screen. Do you think there's any truth in that? Yeah, I do. I think, you know, in a, in a weird way, uh, stories, both biblical stories and, and the kind of films that we try to do are these transmitters of something that's too complex to talk about with words. And so you're trying to encapsulate these concepts in stories because that's a more real way of talking about it than trying to use just words. I don't know if I'm making any sense, but it's amazing how you can read the same story, especially a biblical story over, you know, through your life. And it'll mean entirely different things. The stories that I read about Noah in, you know, grade school are very different I understood them very differently than I do today. Discernment plays a very important part in Ignatian spirituality. Hmm. Uh, and I wonder how you feel that was reflected in the film. Well, we have Joe, of course, who believes he has this very focused purpose in his life. And then there's another character who is the opposite, who feels like there is no purpose. I, I don't, she doesn't understand uh, why go live, why be a part of life. And so this idea that, you have to decide for yourself. You have to uh, engage with the world is ultimately, I think, where both characters come to the sense that you're, you're not just handed the answers. You have to grapple with them. You have to engage with them in ways that uh, everybody in the world has to. Pete, what's the one thing from Ignatian spirituality that you take into your work in making animated films? There are a lot of things. Um, I mean, I feel like because Ignatius... Uh, I was kind of a soldier, right, uh, in, in, in life. And so everything had a very practical sense. And I, it becomes a very practical way to approach something that often is very mysterious and elusive. We've all had the experience of being in nature and, and uh, having that sense of awe and connection. Uh, and then the next moment, it's gone. And so having these practices, these exercises that you can turn to on a daily basis uh, it helps you sort of grab onto this thing that is sometimes beyond description. 
That was Pete Doctor, a Hollywood legend who, interestingly, comes from a Protestant tradition. Jim, you know Pete Doctor. How do you respond to that interview? Oh, it's beautiful. It's it's a beautiful explication of Ignatian spirituality. And I think, you know, he's right about stories uh, opening up people's minds in a way that uh, sort of arguments or, you know, uh, debates uh, won't. There's a reason why Jesus taught in stories and parables. They change your mind and your heart. And so something like soul does that. And I was I was really stunned by the end, which is a beautiful, I don't want to give away the ending, but a beautiful demonstration of finding God in all things. Jim, we have a Jesuit Pope, the first in history, and you're a Jesuit. That must be And probably the last in history. (laughs) (laughs) Why do you say that? He's really shaken things up. He's the first Jesuit Pope, and uh, you see what you get. You get, as, uh, as Anne and Ruth and I know this expression, a person of the exercises. And what does that mean? That means someone who is free. And so he doesn't have to do things the way that they were done. I don't have to live in the papal palace. I don't have to wear the red shoes. I'm free of that. And that that really is a person of the exercises. And I think that many people in the church were surprised by that. So when Pope Francis talks about leaving things up to someone's conscience or discernment, uh, it really freaks people out because they say, what about the rules? Well, you know, what, what is this? Anything goes. But no, this is a person who trusts that the Holy Spirit is at work in the individual and in groups. That's the fundamental difference between Pope Francis and his opponents. I I simply don't think that they grasp that part of his spirituality or of Ignatian spirituality. That, as Ignatius said, and this got him into trouble, this got him jailed, the creator can deal directly with the creature.
Kenneth Stephen is a poet who used to live in Dunkeld, and he's been on this programme many times. Kenneth explores why people are drawn to poetry in times of crisis. Today, Kenneth looks at The Lake Isle of Innisfree by W.B. Yeats, and it's read by Emma Fielding. William Butler Yeats wrote his celebrated poem, The Lake Isle of Innisfree, as a young man in London. He was still next to unknown as a writer, and the struggle to make any kind of living was a constant burden. One day, when he was in the Strand, he heard the tinkling of water. He found the source in a little shop display, and the sound was sufficient to transport him to his mother's county Sligo and his own childhood days there, the memories of wandering and freedom in that wild country. It's a poem about leaving behind the grey mediocrity of existence and beginning again. The poem speaks to us because we have all been homesick and world-weary. We know what it means to decide there and then on the journey, the journey that will heal the heart. In fact, healing comes from having made the decision to embark on the journey from having decided to leave behind all that weighs us down and keeps us back and prevents light from striking the grey prison inside us. I will arise and go now, and go to Innisfree, and a small cabin build there, of clay and wattles made. Nine bean rows will I have there, a hive for the honey bee, and live alone in the bee-loud glade. And I shall have some peace there, for peace comes dropping slow, dropping from the veils of the morning to where the cricket sings. There midnight's all a glimmer, and noon a purple glow, and evening full of the linnet's wings. I will arise and go now, for always night and day I hear lake water lapping with low sounds by the shore, while I stand on the roadway or on the pavements grey, I hear it in the deep heart's core. Handel evokes the story of the healing that David's playing brought to the troubled heart of Saul. The Old Testament story makes me consider that however miserable or harsh our condition may be, the poem can free us, if only for a time, from the imprisonment it imposes on our spirit. And we do not go back to our situation, the reality of our daily existence, quite the same. We are reawakened to an awareness of what is good and what is beautiful and what is true. And so the words of Oscar Wilde are made true. We are all in the gutter, but some of us are looking at the stars.
Edwards was a doctor and a member of Pitlochry Church of Scotland. George was a great supporter of a messy church. Unfortunately, George died early because of a brain tumour. George's son Stephen spoke at the service in the church to celebrate George's life. For me, today is a day of uh, celebration. It's about remembering uh, life. My dad was the type of man who was always trying to please others. As a GP, he seemed hardwired and asking, How are you? Are you well? How are your family? And are they well? And your parents? Are they well? This polite character on the outside meant that he'd have to bottle up his mischievousness during the year until April Fool's Day. For that half day a year, he would unleash an uncharacteristic blitz of mischief. One year he passed the message on to my brother Michael that a prospective house buyer was about to come and view the house and he had to clean it up. Which Michael was in the middle of doing when he clicked. Actually, no. (laughs) Another year, just days before, my wife and I were due to travel to Kenya where we were surrounded by packed suitcases. He called me on the phone out of bed at 7 o'clock in the morning to tell me there had been a major military coup in Kenya and all flights were grounded and no compensation given. And it took us a good half an hour to click. 
Often his desire to please others would be to the detriment of time with his family. One of the most common memories I have of dad is of him working late into the night, working slowly through a big stack of GP paperwork to make sure that he did a thorough job and didn't let anyone down. This workaholism didn't impress me. Indeed, I consciously tried to avoid it in my own life. What did impress me was his faith in God. For a busy man, I'd often come downstairs for breakfast and see him spending time on his knees praying and reading his Bible. That faithfulness spoke to me. For years, I pushed God out, didn't believe he existed, wasn't interested, or so I thought. And at age 22, I came to realize that God is very much real and how much God loves me and how much he wants his best for me. Because of that faith that dad had, I have a hope and I have a certainty that death is not the end. Death is beaten. And I know that dad had that certainty as well. I love in the Bible in Romans 8, 37, 39, which says, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I also love Psalm 23. It's one of my favorite Psalms and it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil because you are with me. I love how it says shadow of death. It doesn't say the valley of death because death is beaten through Jesus. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There's a quote that I love that I heard not so long ago that says, Don't make history. Change the future. And very much the life of my dad has impacted so many different people and has left a legacy in history. But actually, it's the future that has changed because of this man's life that really impacts me. And of my kids and of my grandkids. So I I want to leave you with that message. Today is about celebrating life. Today is about enjoying what is gone, remembering the sad times. But it's also remembering the, the legacy and the things that have changed because of Dad. So I want to thank Dad publicly for his faithfulness in those times that really spoke to me. i
emphasizes the fact that we are never too old to serve God. Harry Lipsick was a lawyer in New York. He practiced until he was into his 90s. One of the cases which came into his office and brought him back out from behind his desk and into the courtroom was of a woman who was suing New York City because a drunken police officer had struck and killed her 71-year-old husband with his patrol car. She argued that the city had deprived her of her husband's future potential earnings. The city argued, perhaps understandably, that at the age of 71 he didn't have much future earning potential. They thought they had been pretty clever and they thought it was a good defence until they realised that the woman's argument about her husband's future was future earning power was being advanced by an 88-year-old lawyer who cited himself as an exhibit when he argued that the 71-year-old psychologist who'd been killed could have earned money for years to come. He could well have outlived me, argued Lipsick. The city settled and paid out one and a quarter million dollars. But this wasn't a one-off. Lipsig represented clients who had been widowed, orphaned, crippled or maimed through someone else's negligence. When Harry Lipsig died in 1995, one report in the New York Times painted a picture of this giant of the courtroom. On one side of the courtroom in the typical Lipsig case, the jury would see a group of high-powered lawyers jumbled several deep behind the defendant's table. They were representing one or more large insurance companies. On the other side, jurors would see Mr Lipsick, all five foot three inches of him, sitting alone. I suppose one of the questions raised by our readings today is, is God calling you with your wisdom, with your lived experience to work alongside him? God calls not because of our perceived or real weaknesses, but because of our strengths and because he knows we are capable of more. 
And perhaps like Simon Peter, we just need to hear someone say, as one translation put it, launch out into the deep. Because sometimes we need to be challenged to go beyond what we think we're capable of. The story in Luke's Gospel is not so much a story about fishing, but about trust. Jesus was saying to Simon Peter, how far are you willing to trust me? Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. When you move, I'll move. I will follow you. Trust in